If you are visiting this summer, our summer sermons are a little different. They're one part sacred text with a pastor and one part sacred story with a storyteller. And then we invite you to draw the connectors between the two. So here is our storyteller for today. Kirby, what was the last name again? Oberg. 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 Nice Kirby to meet you. Oberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're going to put on the screen a picture. This is when we met. Here is a picture of when we met. You're going to help point us out, Kirby. Where are oh, we? Oh, my there? word. We are. Go left, go down. There's Christy, beautiful blonde hair. There's I, Kirby, beautiful I blonde hair. hair. <laughs> oh, my word, what happened? <laughs> we, we, met up, we met in Oregon, of course. This is Big Lake Youth Camp. It's the best place to get a date, except for Walla Walla and Southern. So we got the date and then went to Walla Walla. So you're going to tell how long I had to wait for you? You waited a long time, but that's a different story. Okay. That's a very scandalous story we're not going to talk about today. Okay. We'll call you in a minute. Okay, bye. Don't tell that story. <laughs> Don't tell that story, okay? <laughs> Since I have known this one, he's been asking why. So the experiment down here, yeah, he'd be all about the variables. He'd be all about the pressure and the mass and, and the gas and the, all, the, all the things and how could we manipulate it to get a different response. Since I've known Kirby, he's been about the why. The why is an important question that children learn to ask from a young age, right? The why, if we were to ask a, a philosopher like Immanuel Kant, German philosopher, 18th century, he would tell, 19th century, he would tell us, asking why causality is one of the ways we know things, and it's an important question. And it would take him a three-hour lecture to get there. Asking why. The social scientists tell us that our children do this by watching the grown-ups in their life, that we actually teach them this language game. So asking why starts early because they've been watching us, cause and effect. So it starts early, right? And, and, and for parents, the first whys are amazing. Our child is brilliant. Why does the cat have a tail and I don't? You know, they're otherwise completely diapered and dependent, and they come up with these wonderful observations. The wondering whys. The wondering whys continue, right? And some social scientists tell us kids can ask 250, 300 why questions a day. Where are you, parents? So it's less adorable after a while, right? The wondering whys often lead to whiny whys. Why can't I? which is when parents read for, we just need one word, because. Because we're the big people and you're the little people. Children learn to play this language game by watching the adults, social scientists tell us. And then we grow into adulthood and some of us, our inquisitiveness continues. Now, I will admit, it was after I married Kirby that I realized I had actually married inquisitiveness. <laughs> this is how a conversation goes. Driving along the road. Oh, did you notice on the bridge, right in the middle, there's this arch. I, I can't tell why that arch is there. Did you see that? No. Because if you look at it carefully, I don't think it's actually providing any structural support. Did you ever wonder about, no. 
Do you think they just put it there for aesthetic reasons? Like it's beautiful to make the, I never wondered that either. Because if they put it there for aesthetic reasons, it's really not beautiful at all. It's very quite ugly. Have you ever thought about that bridge by our house is so ugly? No, I never have. No, I've never thought of that. We can be, it could be the toaster in the house. Why did they put the lever here instead of there? It could be the shopping cart at the Target store. It could be a tool in the garage. It can be, uh, it could be the way a binding is put on the back of the book. Did you ever wonder why they never did? That's just not something I ever thought about. This is the guy who picks up the Rubik's Cube and says, did you ever wonder why they didn't go with a sphere while we're all solving it? No, I never wondered, did you? So it was my mother, a while after we were married, who not so quietly observed, you know, we don't have to ask why about everything. Sometimes it's okay to be quiet. <laughs> Hear a word from the Apostle Paul this morning. Romans, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are different gifts, but how many spirits? How many lords? How many gods? Is it that some of us are blessed with this inquisitiveness then? Is that what it is? Because it didn't make it in the list. Some will be apostles and some will be teachers and some will be prophets and some will have the gift of teaching and wisdom and speaking tongues. If inquisitiveness came from the Spirit, it didn't make our list. Are some simply blessed with this inquisitiveness? We know the Apostle Paul, friends. We know 1 Corinthians. We know this passage. We've studied it here many times. You've studied it in your homes, in your Sabbath school classes, in your Bible study communities. We know that the Apostle Paul is the critical care leader. We know that the letters are going back and forth by courier, that the challenges are thick and real. We know it's a diverse group of people living in a large city, Corinth. We know they're surrounded by the sea and lots of sailors and lots of sports. Think Olympic Games. We know there's a temple devoted to the god Aphrodite. Why would you go to a synagogue or a house church if, church if you could stop by the temple and get a consecrated visit? This is Corinth. We know this community. So the Apostle Paul has dropped in. It's, the challenge has been going on since at least chapter seven. Their diversity has gotten the best of them. And it's deteriorated into this spiraling conversation about whose gifts might be more useful or better. Here's the superior gift. Here's the gift we might not need. Here's the gift we'll go ahead and block from our community. It sounds like this. I can speak in tongues. Well, I can speak in tongues only the superior and the elite can understand. Well, the guy down the street can heal. Can you do that? Well, the woman at the other side of the market, she can prophesy. Do you do that? I can pat my head and rub my stomach. Well, we don't need that in this community. This is what's happening in the letter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. There are different spiritual gifts, but the same spirit. Different ministries, the same Lord. Different activities, but the same God who produces all of them in everyone. This is a demonstration of the Spirit. It's given to each person for the common good. So the popular understanding of this passage is we take spiritual gifts. Go ahead and back up. 
or go forward. We take spiritual gifts and activities and ministries and we understand these are all different words. The first one is the word for grace. The second one is the word for deacons, diakona. The third one is energma, the word for work or operations and we begin to separate into camps. Well, I have this gift, will you have that? We take this one and we take the list in Romans and the list in Ephesians chapter four and we quickly see the list is not exhaustive. And we don't all find our part and the place where we belong in these lists. But I wanna look at something else rather than this popular understanding. Go back again and look. There are different, next, yeah, different spiritual gifts, different ministries, different activities. The, so Paul is saying we are all different, we are all different, we are all different. Did you catch it? We're all different. It's one word, the only time it's used in the New Testament. Your Bible might say, we are different, we have variations, we have variety, we have diversity. It's one word, we are different, we are different, we are different, the Apostle Paul says. And God gives this to everyone. Well, thanks for that, God. You mean the diversity came from God? You mean God is the instigator of inquisitive people who ask why? You mean the Spirit, this is at the hand of the Spirit? See, the hope is that if the tribe of Jesus could figure out how to live together with less toxicity and more health, that maybe the world who is watching will see evidence of the divine. The Spirit is nothing more than to show us how to do the life of Jesus, and here is the Spirit giving us diversity. God is behind our diversity? then how will we know who, who, who belongs and who is out of bounds? Watch this little one from the First Baptist Church in Nashville. Thanks, Karen Lancaster, for this. Watch this little one in the children's choir. kid in the blue shirt in front of her, by the way, right? I got an old, old soul choir, old church choir in this soul she's singing. She cannot stop. Thanks for that, spirit. How can we tell who belongs and who's out of bounds? Turns out that's the wrong question, church. Paul just told us there will be a variety in the tribe of Jesus. The text warns us, don't look for these boundaries and for this uniform experience. The Spirit is gonna give us all something different. Now, listen to how that manifests in the life of Kirby Oberg. So I guess... Sometimes that's a blessing, sometimes that's a curse. 
I was born with this insatiable inquisitiveness, the annoying why or how. Um, I guess you could say I never really outgrew the terrific twos. Um, how does a clockwork can keep time? How does a key align pins in a tumbler to unlock a door? How does a piano use strings to make precise percussive sounds? Got too many buttons up here. So, oops, well, we can go back, that's fine. When, uh, as an example, early in our marriage, Christy and I purchased this upright uh, piano. Uh, got it at a garage sale for a good price. It had a few keys that didn't work. So one afternoon, while Christy was at work, I deconstructed the piano. <laughs> it was not nearly this organized, I must say. In fact, in our uh, living room, we had the keys on the couch, there were pedals on the footstool, the soundboard was up against the wall, and the hammer action mechanism, which had two broken hammers, was on the carpet. When Christy got home, not excited, <laughs> but the hammers got fixed, the piano reassembled, a few extra screws, but that's fine, and when we left Nashville, Tennessee, we sold it for a profit. Um, for me, though, it was not making a little extra money that was worthwhile. It was actually a better understanding of how a piano actually works. Way cool. But now, since I have matured, the questions haven't stopped. Actually, my role as a developmental biologist deals with what your title for the bio says today. Stories that shape us. I get the privilege of studying the story that shapes us. How you go from a single cell through this incredible journey to become a beautiful little baby. And unfortunately, this journey is laden with how come, why? Let me share with you one of the whys that we're working with right now in the lab. I get to ask the question, how do fingers develop? This is another thing about maturity. <laughs> Wonderful. But I get to ask these questions about how we develop. And fingers, fascination with fingers. How do we get a thumb here? How do we get a little finger here? How does that work? Let me take you back through our story. We start out looking like this. This is at four weeks of development. This is where we all were just a little bit ago. I'm gonna cartoonize this so that I can show you the structures. You can see where the eye, and now I've got another one that I can use for this. You can see the eye, the heart. Somites are the structures that are gonna make up our vertebra for our back. And this little nubbin of tissue here is gonna make up our arm and fingers. If we zoom in on that, you can see that there is a cluster, I wanna point out a cluster of cells that's right here in the developing limb that will make fingers. This cluster of cells is called the zone of polarizing activity, or for short, ZPA. And the ZPA produces sonic hedgehog. 
So you might ask the question, how did we get that name? And that's a whole other story. But let me just make a comment that there is some truth to the show The Big Bang Theory about how science do things. That's suffice. So Sonic Hedgehog is produced from this cluster of cells, and it is Sonic Hedgehog that helps define the shape and the position of our fingers. That's cool all on its own. Way cool. Sonic Hedgehog helps us decide how to make fingers. But how? How does it do that? There are situations where when this sonic hedgehog process is disrupted, you either have no fingers or you have too many fingers. If you take a look at these two models, a chicken and a mouse, the mouse has too many fingers. If you take a close look, it has eight fingers. They're all looking very similar. Compared to a normal mouse limb, there's five fingers similar to us. And the chicken, the chicken has no fingers, and it usually has three fingers. So how does it do this? How is it that a developing baby will know how to turn off Sonic Hedgehog at the right time to give you the right level and then to turn Sonic Hedgehog off again after making figures? Let me just use an example for a minute. Air conditioning unit. Um, we all are very familiar with that. The air conditioning unit, if we want to set this at a desired temperature in here, we have a thermostat, and there's a sensor in the thermostat. We set the temperature at a certain comfortable level. The sensor indicates when the temperature gets too high, it turns on the air conditioning unit, and when the temperature reaches, the sensor indicates it's time to shut things off, and off goes the air conditioning unit. So that's the concept that we're trying to understand within the embryo. But how would you even hunt for a genetic finger-specific sensor or thermostat, or maybe I should call it a fingerstat, that controls making specific fingers? One way is by how we compare it with other species. So if we take a look, all of these species have fingers. Dogs, well, the paw, those are fingers. Mouse, cute little things, got all kinds of fingers. Scary thing, still has finger, an opossum has fingers. A chicken, just showing you there's three fingers, it will have fingers. Frog has fingers. And even a fish, you might not think about it, but those fins are like fingers. And the amazing thing about this they're all controlled by Sonic Hedgehog to make them. So if Sonic Hedgehog is making all these fingers, could it be that we use the same sensor? So that's part of what we have looked for. And the sensor is, is in a sense, something that's found in DNA. This is a complicated slide. And let me just take you back through how and why we're doing this. Um, if we compare around the gene sonic hedgehog and look for the sensors, part of what we're looking for is when is it similar across species. We found this region, which is similar across 
all these species I mentioned, and you can see up at the side, there's dog, mouse, opossum, chicken, frog, and zebrafish, a fish. When we compare it to humans, the pink is identifying what's similar or nearly identical. And this blue is identifying a protein. The protein part is identical across these species, but also this region. Now, this region was thought to be junk DNA or just random DNA that kind of separates genes. And it turns out it's not junk DNA, that actually this region right in here is actually a sensor. And part of how we identify that it's a sensor is by lining up the genome of all of these different species, which to me is just amazing. All of these animals have to control sonic hedgehog, and it turns out we all have a genetic finger-specific sensor in the same region. So if we compare our DNA with other animals, we can more easily discover where these sensors, not just for sonic hedgehog, but for other types of control as well, are within us. To me, that was just really incredible. In Genesis, we are asked to be caretakers of the animal kingdom. And to me, this adds a whole new level of connectedness with the animal kingdom that I never anticipated. What about animals that don't have fingers? Are you doing okay, all right? We're okay? So one last one, what about animals that don't have fingers? How about a snake? Would a snake have a finger sensor? It turns out, yes, in the same region. So scientists found that there was a finger center, uh, sensor that's upstream, or I should just say close by to Sonic Hedgehog. The snake actually, you might not know this, but snakes actually start to make legs and then they stop. That's probably good for us. It'd be very <laughs> creepy to have legs on snakes. But they stop. So what the scientists did is they took out the snake sensor and transferred it into the mouse, replaced it for the mouse sensor, and that's what you're seeing here, what's purple. Put it in the mouse sensor. What do you think happens in the mouse? You get a snake-like mouse. We call it a snouse. <laughs> no, we don't. We don't. But, but that mouse starts to make legs just like the snake would and then stops. So that sensor is doing the same thing in the snake as it's doing in the mouse. And in fact, when scientists took a look at the actual DNA sequence, they identified a few bases that were different that they thought might make the difference, so they changed a few of them. And when they changed a few of the snake sensor in the mouse, they got back legs. Which really begs the question, which is being asked now, can we put legs on a snake? <laughs> we don't want to do that. <laughs> I agree. So for me, fingers are important. And I think a fair question is, why am I so interested in fingers and limbs? Um, I think it's, it's, it's a fascinating story, and let me just tell you, in short, it's because of my dad. At 21, my dad cut off the tip of his thumb while chopping wood. He grabbed the tip of his thumb, 
You can't see it there, but let me go to this next one. He grabbed the tip of his thumb, quickly rushed to the hospital, where they promptly threw the tip away and sewed over top of the stub. We would do that different today. But for the rest of my childhood, I mean, 21, I was not born yet, so during my entire childhood, I grew up fascinated with this stubby thumb. And in fact, if the church sermon was not awesome, sorry, um, I played with my dad's stubby thumb. It became just a real interesting thing for me. And when I learned that salamanders could grow back arms and legs, I decided I wanted to grow back arms and legs in people, not just in salamanders. And I must also admit at this point in time, I was incredibly blessed with very supportive parents. When they learned that I wanted to become a physician scientist and grow back arms and legs, they never faltered in believing that I could do it. Sometimes to a fault. Uh, there were times when I felt like my mother thought that I could walk on water. I could not. That's her job. <clears throat> but when I would go home, my dad would lift up his thumb and say, you ready to grow this back yet? And I would say another important influence in my life was my grandfather. Um, when I was young, he could do anything. Um, and he would give me advice, he'd encourage me, he'd say, basically, if you strive for nothing, you will achieve it. If you reach for the stars, maybe you'll at least reach the moon. And my grandfather was a great role model. How does a clock work and keep time, I asked. My grandfather helped me deconstruct a watch, and then we discussed how the gears in the spring would help you keep time. How does a key align pins in a tumbler to unlock a door? My grandfather was also a locksmith and taught me that as well. He called himself a jack of all trades. I called him amazing. For me, that was the insight to the fact you could do almost anything. My family was also supportive of my attempts to conquer the impossible. When I wanted to spend my hard-earned berry-picking money on lumber and hardware to build the shuttlecraft Galileo in my backyard, <laughs> oh, I wish that were true, <clears throat> um, they supported me. My grandfather drove me to the lumber mill and to Ace Hardware. He was not fond of my idea, but he gently and justly suggested that I should try some other things to do with my money, but he never refused to support me. He continued to take me to the store when I needed something else. And in the backyard sat a half-put-together Galileo for a number of years. Let me just say that when you have that kind of total support for your vision, you don't see limits. You will learn your limits. My Galileo never set sail. But by dreaming of the impossible, maybe we can transform what is possible. So does it matter if I discover how a limb is formed? Maybe not for everyone. But for some, it might be confirmation of how they are blessed. Notice this woman, she has six fingers. It's a woman from Brazil, and in fact, her entire family has six fingers. They love it, they embrace this. 
The kids say that it gives them a distinct advantage in sports, which is favorite is football. And as a goalie, you have one extra finger to stop the ball. And, and Lucas, I think you're from Brazil. So this must be why the piano. He can probably hit any notes. Um, and thank you for, for what you do for our church with playing. Um, for others, it might be insight into how they might grow back a finger or a limb. If not for my dad, maybe for another soldier. For others, it might just be to understand how or why, like me. For some, it can be to figure out what happened to themselves or to their child. Um, I'm a pediatric pathologist as well, and I study congenital anomalies. So for little kids, I often will get called and asked, why did this happen? Is this something we did? I'm currently working with a dad who lost his son with a number of congenital anomalies. And for him to find out why, to answer a few of those questions, is helpful. And if he can help us understand how this might occur in another child, that's helpful in closure. It also can help us understand how we might be able to avert the process or identify it much earlier. It's also important because knowledge helps us understand who's at fault. In biblical times, the disciples asked Jesus when they saw a blind man, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Today, we've come to understand that mutations are not the fault of the child. They're not a fault, it's not from a sin. This is part of the world we live in, sin happens, and bad things happen within our DNA. To me, that's important, so that's also how knowledge is important, how we relay that and how we treat people. I never considered that my quest to understand science and discover answers surrounding God's creation would at times put me at odd with my church. But discovery, gaining new insights, demands that we allow our current dogma and belief system to be challenged. From my perspective and understanding of our Adventist heritage, that was core to Adventism. We are seekers of truth. We respect tradition, but it is not more important than truth. If we're earnestly searching for insight and understanding and open to the Spirit, we can expect to be challenged. And I will tell you that in my journey, I have been challenged. Some time ago, I heard a quote that has helped me manage and grapple with the challenges both in science and in my conflicts with doctrines that seem out of alignment with the data. And this is by a mathematician, George Box. All models are wrong, but some are useful. If you pause on that for a second, our perceptions, our perspectives, our belief systems are built on models. All models are wrong. I think of, I think of looking at the uh, four Gospels. I don't know if I like to call them wrong, but they're different. They're all looking at the same perspective, but they have a different approach. And when we have the freedom to say, God, I do not understand, help me understand, we open the opportunity for us to see new insight. This quote has helped me. And I now look at both my science as this is wrong, but it's useful for this season. I am searching for newer models that can help me better understand. 
That's also been the history of our church from its beginning. I have always loved this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, so one chapter off. For now we see in a dim mirror, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, even if I has been, even as I have been fully known. I'm not sure why I have to know why. Is it a bit defiant? Maybe. Maybe is it a touch of divine? I am grateful that in this space, in this sanctuary, that I can ask why. And as a pastor's wife, that science and faith can coexist. Thank you. As we conclude today, he didn't say to you, this has been his study for 20 years. 20 years, I can't do anything for 20 years. So the picture with the variety of deformed children's limbs, Kirby told me yesterday, we know, now know the why to all of those different deformities. Because inquisitive people are willing to ask. You didn't say too much about the tensions and where all this science takes thinkers, you and your colleagues. We remember today that these tensions, Kirby, will remain until we see the face of Jesus, right? We remember today that scientists and thinkers and people who do creative intellectual work are not always appreciated. I wanna leave you with a, some, a word from Alistair McGrath, a theologian for a scientist. Alistair McGrath says this, in Christianity, it is more by accident than by design that thinkers destabilize or subvert the system. And these, this dynamic is spread out over extended periods of time so that the last word on a particular controversy can take generations to be written. That means that reformers may be deemed in one era, they may be damned, and in the next generation rehabilitated. Apparent heresiarchs, people who spread heresy. Apparent heresiarchs are sometimes remembered as faithful Christians who named abuses rather than wrecked the faith. Mystics burned on stakes like Joan of Arc may re-emerge as saints. It turns out that God is not looking for a tidy community or a super talented community. God is looking for a courageous community the Spirit gave diversity. We have to deal with it. So let me show you a picture of Kirby at age about two. These would be the little shoes you wore at age two, Kirby. This wasn't part of the script. This is not part of the script. Thanks for not telling the big leg story. And your mom wrote on everything. She has the date here, August 21, 1961, Kirby Clyde Oberg, where is this, the next size he needs is a size 7D. In, in your little baby book, when you were about that age, two and a half, your mom made some notes about you. She wrote everything down. This one is priceless. At age two and a half, you said your first memorized prayer. Do you know what it was? 
She writes, two years old, he prays very clearly now. He knows the Lord's prayer and says it at worship by heart. At age two and a half, he blesses all of us at the table. At age two and three quarters, he wanders on in long prayer now. <laughs> and here's a note when they dropped you off. Um, I'm gonna show you again a, a picture of C.C. Sailor, Kirby's named after his grandfather. He went around to Grandpa Sailor's house and he is almost three years old. He followed Grandpa, hammering nails into the wood and putting them away afterwards. Grandpa says, this little one reminds me of me. Some people are really born asking questions. We didn't say anything today about a guy who would marry a pastor. <laughs> didn't say anything about what it takes. Kirby will say to me, just tell me when I need to show up and I'll come. Just where do we need to, where are the enemies? I'll go and stand with you. He doesn't waste his time. Just tell me where, where am I needed? Because if a strong guy stands next to me, people calm down. We didn't even say anything about that today. Kirby, it is your resilience and it is your guts and it's your potency in science. Now we see dimly. But one day, we'll see face to face. I'm so glad someone nurtured you to do this. I'm reminded, do you remember the story I told you of this little guy over at the School of Business? A few years ago, we came for an important event and they had people parking the cars and there's this little tiny guy out there wearing a big, heavy vest, parking yellow vest, and he's like 10 years old. I have no idea who he is, so I said, who, who are you? My name is Chris, who are you? And he said, oh, I just came to help park cars. I said, well, you should come to university here one day. He said, okay. I said, do you know what you wanna do when you grow up? Yeah, I'm gonna be a cancer doctor. I said, who has cancer in your family? And he said, my grandma, but I want to fix that. He said, you come study here. Okay, I will. The spirit gives that kind of curiosity. May God be praised.